and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Happy, happy new year, everyone. Happy new year to all of our challenges that change us community. I am so pumped to be on here with you today, wherever you are in the world. If you have not had the chance already, I invite you to carve out 10 minutes of your day after this very episode to spend a moment reflecting on 2023. What words would you use to describe 2023? If you could only pick four or five, which ones would you choose? Perhaps reflect on who was there for you at different times and different stages throughout the year. Maybe think about what lessons you've gained that you want to add to your life's toolbox as you go in and go forwards into 2024. Talking about the new year, have I got the most exciting news for you guys. We have now launched the High Performance Leadership Summit. It's on in March up in the Brizzy area. I have pulled together six exceptional individuals from the high-performance realms of sport, military, business, and psychology to create a rare once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that is going to be available for 25 of you, and it is for three full days. So if you, my friend, are a senior leader or a high performer, you need to press pause on this right now and jump on the link in the show notes. This is an opportunity not to be missed. We have David Ballard from the Brisbane Broncos. Anyone that watched the grand final last year, you know how much that team has improved over 12 months. And we are going to be hearing from him and asking him lots of questions around performance, around culture, around delivering week in and week out. And we have Sammy Kennedy Sims, three times Australian Olympian. That is over 12 years at the top. We have Cliff and Morgan, an organizational psychologist, bringing a wealth of wisdom from the world of military. And Australian Wayne Rubin and Pearl Lim from Singapore, who both led successful multinational businesses, and myself. This is three days of immersive, transformative, and a deep dive into high performance leadership. If you want to know more, I'm more than happy to jump on a call with you. DM me or shoot me an email and we will line it up. Remember, there is only 25 spots and it is absolutely going to sell out fast. Talking about leaders, today's guest is the definition of a leader. I was so inspired and moved by this conversation that you are going to hear. I will never know if it's because my daughter started to lose her hearing a few years ago or if it was simply that I was blown away by David's incredible determination, grit and story. His sensational attitude towards life is infectious. I cannot tell you how much I took away from this conversation, and I just know that you will too. David Brady has ample experience to share, including his insights into living with hearing loss. Profoundly deaf since birth, he grew up in Armidale, 
where he has overcome so many challenges to complete his HSC and gain degrees at both the University of New South Wales and the University of Sheffield in the UK. David was the Chief Executive Officer of Here For You from 2013 to 2021. He then oversaw the integration of Here For You into the Shepherd Centre, providing an award-winning program for teenagers to complete the childhood development framework. Prior to this, he worked in the sport and recreation management industry for 15 years, rising to a National Senior Sports Association executive and at one stage was the only deaf person at this level in Australia. A keen sportsman, he has also represented Australia at the 2005 Deaf Olympic Games and played state-level water polo, hockey, beach volleyball, and he is currently the chairperson of the Deafness Forum Australia, member of the advisory board for Macquarie University Centre for Implementation of Hearing Research. And he was one of the architects of the Commonwealth Government Roadmap for Hearing Health for Australia. I mean, this guy, this guy is truly inspirational and I cannot wait to share his story with you. So let's get into it. Welcome, Dave, to Challenges That Change Us. Thank you for coming on this afternoon. Thank you, Ali. Really appreciate being here. I love to open every episode with asking our guests what animal best describes you and what is it about that animal in particular? The best one to be a killer whale. Why? Just smart. They look at open spaces and have different opinions. Yeah, just something about it. I love water as well. They're a beautiful creature. I know they're super aggressive. I guess most animals in the water are, but just the way that they can move through the water, there's something really magical about them, I think. It is, but they're also very good at working independently, but also working as a team. Which I think we're going to hear a little bit about today with you. What I was thinking, maybe the best place for us to start is for you to tell us a little bit about you. I was born and bred in Armidale, so um, I was born way back in the 19s, early 70s, probably around that time my parents have just moved off from Sydney you know on their firstborn apparently everything seemed to be all good except my mum was a little bit sick when uh, she was pregnant with me after a few months probably about eight nine months they noticed I wasn't really picking things up very well I was sleeping through thunderstorms parties that my parents obviously had and not picking up the clothes and then they took me for a hearing test Back in those days, the hearing test was a bell that run by a GP or a nurse. Unfortunately, at the baby with a hearing loss, I had really good vision. So I saw the bell and I thought, oh, the kid was fine. But only until a few more months, up to a 10 months after I came back from the UK, introduced to um, my father's family. They realised that something's still not quite right and then had another um, sort of more deeper examination and I found I did have a severe found hearing loss and I was then taken to Royal North Shore Hospital for my test. Yeah, I went to here in Australia after my parents were told by the surgeon, your son's deaf, he's not going to achieve anything in his life. That's pretty much what it was. That were the words that my mother and father heard and then my mum and dad naturally as most parents was like okay well we've got to start thinking about moving back to sydney there's a deaf and blind children institute or a deaf school put everything down and then i went to the here in australia which is the audiology appointment which you have to have once you have a 10 month old baby I can imagine what many things going through in their minds. It's now my job today. I work in an organisation called the Shepherd Centre, which deals with 
children have just been diagnosed with hearing loss from birth and working how to use their devices. So that kind of quite an emotional situation or connection for me. So her memory was that I was fitted with hearing aids and then apparently when she said, hello, David, and she said, I actually smiled back at her. That was probably her probably most special moment. Yeah, and that was also inspired by another younger man who also had a hearing aid and uh, they were actually speaking to my mum and dad and she realised that, hang on, this kid is actually smiling back at me. Something might be a bit more injured. Well, as being a teacher, she actually been on maternity leave. She didn't just go back to work. She took time off. Took about four or five years. She did a lot of research. She studied how to help me hear and speak, but also do sign language. Very lucky that she always said to me, I went to school at one year old in nappies. And the Amadou High School at the time had a deaf unit, and that's where all the expertise were. And she was a teacher and connections. And then she said she got all the information how to teach me to communicate. So I think the first priority is about communications and then taken from there. So I think it's her sort of uh, sacrifice of taking time off so that she can put the child first, like many mothers and many parents, I have to say, would do anything for their child to succeed. So she did that. And it was the biggest achievement, I think, for me and my parents at the time was actually walking into primary school, kindergarten, exactly the same age as hearing peers. But that was uh, a major achievement. So that's the first little box ticked, probably the first barrier, because uh, the doctor said, if I go to a deaf school in Sydney, you know, you have to pack up your life in Armadale and move back to Sydney. Whereas my parents have set up a life, but they fought for that life. And that taught me a lot more about myself being a fighter and have some personalities to not take no for an answer in terms of anyone said, you can't do this, I can. And I will. <laughs> and I will. I like that. I can really relate to that. When we heard about Katie's hearing, I remember thinking, we can't stay in Armadale. I researched where are the deaf schools around. We looked, there was one in Melbourne, and we were having conversations about can we, and that's now, you're telling us that this was in the 70s that you were having this conversation. To think that you were in a place that you could walk in in kindergarten with your peers at the same age and communicate is incredible. Well, that just took a lot of determination. Myself, I mean, I, I think I also had a little part to play in that, but I think it was just because I also have a bit of enthusiasm for trying it out. Going back to the languages, I found myself naturally gravitating towards more sound and speaking because the hearing aid for me works. And just to give people some context, my hearing is that of severe profound. So if you're having a sleep, for example, we're trying to describe it in podcast, most people will hear lots of sound like might be woken up by a lawnmower for example outside your front bedroom window i can sleep for that lawnmower i wouldn't even hear a little cup i wouldn't even hear anything with these hearing aids out so that's how much hearing i can't hear i could actually stand next to a runway at sydney airport and watch a jumbo just take off and not even feel like it's going to hear them i'll just watch these planes go off in mute and so i start putting a hearing aid in at the time i'll be able to hear them from that point so i had to rely not just on hearing but also lip reading and working out what people actually say. So that were the big challenges for me. The other big challenge was actually trying to get around the prejudice and the discrimination that I kind of felt a lot more. I mean, one thing that's 
been constant is the challenge of misconception, discrimination about what can deaf people do. What is it? What, for example, go back to that surgeon, going back to Sydney, because that was the deaf tool. That was the solution. Whereas my parents said, well, let's just try it here first. So that was a real important lesson. Try before you give up. And you just mentioned there what can deaf people do has been one of the challenges, one of the barriers. Can you tell us a little more around that? I think the real challenge is the perception, especially starting a school. When I was in kindergarten and then I started moving through primary school, there were more older deaf children than myself. I mean, I was at the back end of what was the rubella epidemic. In the 1960s and 70s, a lot of people who have a hearing loss or vision loss, German measles, and their mother was uh, pregnant. And then still we started getting a vaccination program, late 60s, early 70s, that the hearing loss rate of children being born has decreased. If you might recall, most people used to have vaccination for rubella, especially women or girls, I think around 12 years old, that has made a big play in that. So there was, a, like I mentioned before, my mother took me to school when I was one. There was a deaf unit in the school. There was one in Armadale, in both Armadale City Public School and Armadale High School. So my schooling path all over deaf units. The most interesting thing was, regardless of the fact that we had those deaf units, the teachers at the schools still had the old attitude. I'm dealing with 70s and 80s here, is uh, the deaf kids don't get beyond year 10. They usually end up being a cabinet maker, a plumber, apprentice, anything manual, jobs. I'm not saying they're bad jobs. So we've got some fantastic uh, cabinet makers, artists, etc. It's just when you get beyond year 10, the concept of going to year 11, year 12, doing HSC was unheard of, especially in a town like Armadale. So the most interesting time was when I was in year 10. Fortunately, I was over in the UK. My parents decided to take a gap year, so I went over to England. And then by the time I got back, one of my most profound memories of Armadale High School, aside from some of the challenges as a teenager, was walking into the first day of year 11 and then watching the eyes of my classmates and teachers, some teachers, say, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm here to do my HSC. I'm going to go in year 11. I'm going to study. And I'm going to come out and finish the HSC with some, you know, some good marking history and I'm going to go to university. No. Really? Uh, yeah. Yes, I am. No one's done it before. No, impossible. You know, you guys are all, you guys, the deaf boys in two or three years above me, they didn't come back in year 11. They were gone in year 10, finished school certificate. Off they went to TAFE and do what they did. Dave Brady, what are you doing here? That was my best memory. And I think it was probably, I think there was probably, if I had not said that, I don't think I would be as competitive. Yeah, bring it on. That was, was the 11 and 12. It was a really uh, interesting time. You know, I really, really dived in and I said, look, I'm going to make sure I get to it. The other time is um, when I threw near the end of year 12, no disrespect at the University of New England, but they just said, well, hey, we give you a spot here. You know, don't worry about the HSD. We'll, we'll, we'll look after you get in. I said, I actually want to go to Sydney. I want to follow what other people do. I want to do what I want to do. I want to go to UNSW, University of Sydney. It's pretty hard to do. I don't think you'll do well. You know? Well, guess what? I think the HSC studied my ass off, so I didn't know it there. But then actually did. I did get to University of New South Wales, my first choice. I didn't give up. I mean, ATR wasn't the best in the world, but it was just enough. That's all that matters. You get the money. It's not about getting the 99.995%. 
It's just getting into that course you want to do, and you believe in it, you will get there. And that's what I thought all that time. And I think the other thing is underlying all of that is the challenge that I had to do at high school. And just to reframe it quickly, going back to primary school, in primary school you have one teacher. The teacher can work with my parents and the teacher be deaf, and it just accommodates you in the classroom. So you know where to sit. They'll make you sit in the front. They'll use either just to make sure you got the notes and make sure that the other kids will include you in the class. You grew good relationship with the other kids in your class. I think primary school for me was probably the best time of my schooling because it was fun. By the time I got to high school, I think it was the, I think the loss, what I call, and this is where I go to my mentoring program for these sort of deaf teenagers later on in life, and I've always said this, that the first day of my high school for me was the first day I lost my innocence. And the innocence of feeling that other people will be able to support you that you'll be helped, etc. Now, I had to learn to become a leader from day one in high school, and that is getting the old FM set, which are little equipment that you use, a microphone for the teacher, and the FM. Instead of one teacher, I had six different teachers, six different classrooms, and that average year of an Armadale High School, for example, at that time, the size was about 150 kids. So you're looking at 150 different people to navigate each classroom, different people in the classroom, different environments, different rooms. It was so much more tougher in those days. The other thing is we didn't have the modern technology of today where you had captions. Uh, you know, you could slip open your laptop and, you know, you're captioning live, auto captions. We didn't have any of that. Note takers were unheard of. We were actually left to our own devices. So you have to really survive on yourself. So had to read a lot. And then you had to ask a lot of questions. So I think that was the academical side, the school side. And then in teenagers, you had more bullying. And Armadale being, unfortunately, at the time, quite conservative, lots of misunderstanding against uh, people with hearing loss. And I've had countless fights against being bullied, had situations where I've been left out. I didn't hear it. I didn't understand it. Nobody repeated it. Some people just didn't want me to be part of any of their friendship groups. Uh, it was quite a tough time. And I think that's what really uh, shaped a lot of resilience in me. To get through high school and graduate in year 12, you would have had to have resilience. Like I was thinking as you were talking, what was coming up for me was, and you did all of that when no one could speak your language. Like I'm sure the school and all your friends didn't know sign language at that time. You had to fight the fight, plus be in a world where not everyone could communicate with you. It was since speaking the language is one thing, but also not understanding how to lip read, etc. We had some pretty good teachers. I'm lucky that my parents were the, the Armadale teacher mafia. Those don't know. I'm not going to say anymore. I'll forever hold my peace. But the fact is, uh, yeah, you're right. In terms of the way that we didn't have any Auslan training or anything in the school, so for me it was a totally... Again, I was deprived of that language as well, the opportunity there, but also the fact was also the understanding that most people who have a hearing loss like myself probably wouldn't in sign because we would like to, because our devices work, we can lip read and speak and we can sign. We also conscious of the fact that we're in a world where you, you do need to be able to communicate. And the other thing is you just need those little supports, like the note takers, the FMs, you know, making sure that you don't speak too fast, you know, make sure you get the notes, all those little extras. I do remember the time when I was in the HSC. So glad that the principal of the Armada High School, when I, the other thing in year 11 was really good, the principal had a hearing loss himself and he lost his hearing over time. So he got 
he kind of started getting it. And look, he he always said to me, um, David, I not bored the whole life of it, but because I'm starting to get a glimpse of it, I could start understanding where you're coming from because he's losing his hearing and he realised how difficult. And he loved his music, so he was missing out on that. So you can understand missing out on those things. He actually helped arrange for extra time, myself take a, a thesaurus and dictionary because it wasn't picking up the words. And that's the reason it wasn't necessarily a dictionary of thesaurus in the HSE exams because I didn't understand. It was because some of the words, I can't hear them, so I have to learn the words in that time. I need the extra time so I can learn the words. Unfortunately, there was another episode some of the students in, in my year thought that was cheating. So I was like, Dave, that is so unfair. So you're cheating. You, you, how come you're walking, you're talking, you're speaking like us, you play sports, you're, you're a champion in swimming, and, and then you're asking for extra time in the HSC. How come we do a three-hour exam and you do a, you're allowed to stay there for the next hour? That is totally unfair. So some of them went to the principal to protest. I fortunately didn't realise it was actually the principal who suggested that. So obviously those protests obviously went to his table, uh, out into the bin. But that was the attitude. And then again, it goes back, even when I got my results at the HSE, some of these students thought that that was unfair because I got that mark and I actually cheated to get that mark. But what reality is, I actually didn't get the, the 99.9. I actually got about 70 in my... Um, Mark, but when I look back on it, it actually reflects quite well on how much I actually hear. So when I was speaking to an audiologist expert on hearing, I probably missed about 40% of what's been said in the classroom or shared in the information. So technically, in my books, I probably got close to 99, but to 70 was good enough because I picked up everything I could have heard and learned at the time, as well as playing catch-up. So I think people have got to understand when you have a hearing loss in the classroom, the first casualty is your ability to pick up information it's communication and then you start taking that away and you realize how much information you're picking up also in saying that you wouldn't be aware i'd imagine of how much you're missing because you're missing it so you you're working overtime to try and catch up and be with the peers what you may not have known is that 40 percent of that information wasn't even coming across your plate yeah, no, nothing. Uh, totally right. Totally right. And uh, just reflecting on this, of just how much I had to read, how much I had to double check, and all of that on top of being a teenager. I just want a normal life. I want to get out there and party, and I want to do all these things. I ended up studying more. I ended up doing more. I think I played hockey. I did a lot of swimming. I, I won some swimming. The championships are so good. Swimming is great, even though I can't hear the gun when it starts. So I had to look across the room. And then sometimes I start behind the other swimmers when they're jumping in the water and they're jumping after them and I catch up and I still win. For me, in my corner, I had a very competitive nature and I make no apologies for being competitive. No, it's your greatest skill set. It's your greatest strength. It's what makes you thrive in this world and what can allow you to inspire other people and carve a pathway for people that are coming along behind you. Seeing what you're doing, what you have done, what you're achieving, your attitude, there will be someone out there that hears that, that finds out about that, and you just light a fire in their belly that they go on to inspire others. You know, I think it's absolutely incredible. I'm still back at that you finished year 12. Like we're not even into what you're doing now. But I was thinking, and David, this is at when my daughter started to lose her hearing. One, of, I think 
my tears, and hopefully I won't cry now, but my tears were, I just pictured it being so lonely and isolating. Like I just, for me, I always felt like for her, it must feel like she's in a really dark room trying to find the door and the walls and the doors all feel the same. I don't know where that image has come from. I don't know how accurate it is. But would you describe growing up that it was lonely? I think when I was in teenage years, it can be quite lonely. I think you start missing out on quite a few things. But I think coming with that, you come a bit of resilience. I think with my grandfather, really, that, you know, sometimes you just got to, when people are not including you, you got to keep including yourself. And that was the hardest part because you've got to pick yourself up and motivate yourself to do what you want to do or what you need to do. Not everybody's going to be, I mean, he just said, no, not everybody's going to be the popular one. Not everybody is the, one that everyone wants to be part of. But you've got to remember that if you have a family at home, that is your family. They are your biggest support group. I mean, my brother and my sister and my parents and my extended family, my grandparents, they're all my biggest fans at the time. You know, Even though you don't see it sometimes, some of the teachers at the end of high school, even though some who are on one side of the fence, those who are on my side of the fence, they're also my cheerleaders. You kind of don't realise that until you get to finish the HSC and you realise how much they gave the extra time and effort to support you to get me over the line. I think that's the key. I think one of the things I've noticed, especially with being a teenager, is that anytime someone's different, it's always on the outer. And I think everyone's trying to find a way in. Where if you look back on it, you have to look at your own life, your own journey, and you've got to make that journey. Because it's always someone else or others who are sharing that journey and just haven't seen them because you're so focused on the, the center of the group. And that's why when I was seeing mentoring and here for you, which I'll explain a bit more soon, is we always talk about that movie Mean Girls. And I'm not the spook in the movie, but the whole thing, which is so similar to what it was when I was at high school. You had that group of meanies in the middle there, and we always call them meanies. But what I didn't realise how much was on the outside, there were others struggling on the outside. It's very, very difficult as a teenager to notice because you're so focused on what others should do, what culture has brought in from the outside. You know, you're seeing the, the music for sports, you think, oh, that's the way it should be happening. When in reality, it's not. That's the biggest. I think those skills, we don't really teach that at school. Everything's about getting the marks, being popular. If you don't do well at high school, you're not going to achieve in life. I think those lessons need to be changed. I'm sure there are a lot of there's life education. There's a lot of people trying to change that agenda, but I don't think we do it enough. I agree completely. Is there a moment when you think back through your school that's your proudest moment? I think getting HSC is from my proudest moment. I think walking in at the 11 moment, I think that was a proud moment. They were just like, you know, I'm still here and I got it. And I got in New South Wales. So there you go. It's more like I told you so. I didn't say that, but you say it inside yourself. And I'm sure many people who face many hurdles or prejudices or challenges from other people or something, they said, no, you're not going to do it. And you really don't want to be rude or anything like that. But, you know, you could sort of say silently. Watch me. Watch me fly. And what did the university days look like for you? Universities, that was actually quite fun, actually. University of New South Wales, I actually went to college called New College because I always wanted to do the college experience. And I think my parents, especially my father, he's a big supporter of college life. So I think it was good because I found a community, people who wanted to uh, get involved. I think the other thing is about college, especially when you have a disability, is an opportunity for others to 
learn more about you because you're in their life. You're in their um, college room group, like when we had a room at 10 in that sort of block and then you had people you know, saying, well, look, you go, now I'm deaf and when the fire alarm goes off, don't leave me here, knock on the door and come into my room and drag my feet, out, drag me out of bed, whatever. I mean, they did one night. I thought the fire alarm was not. It was actually a joke, but anyway, that's another story. Uh, but I think it was just the fact that you get to meet them, you socialize with them, you're actually living with these people, you know, can become your friends, eating breakfast, lunch, dinner, going formal, you know, going down to pubs for many of us the first time or legally allowed into these places. Uh, you know, you're sort of learning the first step of life and then studying at university in New South Wales. It's had 20,000 people at the time. It's the same population in Armidale in a city block, which is just mind-blowing for someone from Armidale, country town, which, again, was 25,000 people. So, yeah, the university was good, but it also was tough. Again, it was another challenge. You had to start all over again. You had the FM sets. You had to go and get the note-takers. We didn't have the recordings in those days where you can get the video recording lecture and then press captions or get the transcript. You had to go and chase someone to get the notes. And that's a lot of begging around, but also we had a disability units which help us with the notes and uh, they had special provisions in the exams and all of that stuff we had in the HSC. So the university is very supportive. It was probably the hardest part for me was getting through my English grammar. It wasn't up to scratch because I was so focused on learning. Didn't have many opportunities to learn English grammar and writing properly so I had to do extra time on that so I had to learn how to write essays and things properly how to communicate from what's up in my brain and through the pen and that was probably my weakness at the time and I'm I think that's one of the areas I kind of struggle a bit and I look back on it and I kind of regret the fact that I didn't get that much support and again we go back to the point and say how much did I miss at high school and that was one of the things because the English for me was not the major subject they didn't really encouraged me because they again they thought I'll finish in year 10 and you know you don't really need your English so that's what happened in that point I really enjoyed it I really good the degree social science and policy was uh good but I actually loved the history the history of my passion what happened after university I packed my bags and went to the United Kingdom England do you know I thought you were going to say that <laughs> 100%, 100%. It was either a 21st birthday party or a ticket to, to London. Hard choice. Whole set of new challenges, right? All new challenges. I had relatives in the UK. My father was uh, English background, so we have been over quite a few times before that had, and I thought it was an opportunity. You know, overseas, the home of football, the home of, you know, royalty, all that type of stuff and such a wonderful experience over there in um, the UK. Went over there and... Yes, got a job at a five-star hotel called Clifton, and I believe it or not, I was a footman. Even though I can't hear the guests, I somehow got through carrying the bags, parking cars, and trying very hard not to answer the phones, actually give them to somebody else, and then I just run the errands for them. It was such a good experience. Dave, what did your career look like from there? My career was set when I was in high school. I always wanted to be in sports management, believe it or not. I wanted to run one of those big footy clubs or run a national sports organisation. I've had strong passion for sports. So when I went to university, 
there wasn't any sports uh, management course in Australia. And the other motivation for going to the UK was to actually qualify for the University of Sheffield Master's Degree, Master of Science in Sports Management. And that's one of the other reasons why I went over there, aside from having a holiday and uh, exploring many different new opportunities for work. I have to say that getting my master's degree was another big milestone in my life and it was a nice qualification to have. It was tough doing the thesis. But the most important thing was why did I do it? Why did I choose sport? Because I wanted to do it with my passion. And this is a message I've always took. Is that when you're passionate about something, you should pursue that. Why pursue something that you're not passionate about? Because when you pursue something that you really love doing, you tend to find your way. And that's what happened to myself. It actually started when I was in London and then back here in Australia. And I think it was the prejudice and the difficulties for someone made to get into a job. So the harder thing is, the question that always comes up is, do we put depth in your resume? Do you put it in there because you don't know that people are looking for your resume? doesn't matter how many milestones and how many awards and how many accolades you have. We always felt that you put your hearing loss in the resume they'll immediately focus on their disability? Or would they just use you to tick off a box for disability and not accept you for all the accolades, all the hard work, all the things you achieve and what's coming out of your brain and out of your heart? I found that when you get to interviews, I I can tell you that for my first few jobs, I went for so many interviews, I've lost count. I've become an expert at going to interviews and getting rejected. So rejection was just quite a bit of a normal reality for myself. I have to say that every time I talk to my parents about it and my grandparents and you know relatives and my uncle, my late uncle, um, he worked in HR, said, you've got to keep trying. You've got to keep trying and try and try again. And the other thing I really loved the way he pitched it was, if they reject you, they don't like you. You'd rather go somewhere where they like you, where they accept you. That's pretty good. I like that idea, especially in a job. So I think if you're going to work with these people, they're going to like you. If they don't want you, you save yourself a lot of hassle. And it will thank you very much, Uncle Roger. I really appreciate that. That was a really interesting one. So I think that was a working life. I think it was hard because you had to prove that your deafness doesn't hold you back. I can see it in some time to go an interview. I can see it in the brain of some of these employers or these recruiters and they're going for their brains going, how do we accommodate him? Did he really get the degree? Did he really get that good? Did he really achieve that? Others was... You know, in sports, it's very competitive against sports management. And other people say, why are you trying to get into sports? You know, there are other jobs you can, uh, you can go to. And I remember being unemployed, being in the Dole, Centrelink, going to Centrelink once, and they said, well, we've got a great job for you. The supermarket can do brushing the, you know, clean the aisles, so I'll definitely take you tomorrow. And I'm like, no, I'm going to get the career I want to do. I'm going to start in the sports industry. And that was the, again, there was the prejudice. There was just the communication, the language was saying, no, you can't do this. And I said, well, yes, I want to do this. This is what I'm going to do. So that's the barriers. I think I just had to keep trying and trying again. And I'm so glad I did get that job. And I talked about my first job in Clifton with fondness because, again, just showed what I could do. Like, whoever thought you could have a a front of house, five-star hotel, profoundly deaf footman. Not in our books. Doesn't work. But now they gave me a go. They like me. That's how it works. 
my first job in the sports industry the Sheffield City Council, a sports development officer, and that was probably one of the most insightful jobs I've ever had in my life. It was actually working in a city, Sheffield, and Sheffield, this is Sheffield in the 90s. If anyone ever saw The Full Monty, we're talking about that film. That is exactly what it was. I said you had the elements of the Yemeni and Somali refugees who were escaping from the civil war in Britain. They had to find places where they put the refugees in Sheffield, one of the main cities. So I had to deal with a, a cultural melting pot of, you know, kids who are, well, say, Caucasian. Yemen, you got Somalis, you got Indian background, um, you know, subcontinent background, all trying to mix in, trying to get along. You get a lot of uh, confusion about, you know, race and religion, uh, ideas, you know, and it all came down to poverty. You saw, saw examples of extreme poverty. My program is to use sport as an avenue to create the cultural understanding between one another. And again, it just really was eye-opening how much that sport and just opened up so many doors for communications. I think people have forgotten about the power of sports has on humanity. And then when I came back to Australia, I had some challenges to get in sports jobs again, never really got anything. Uh, until a friend of my mother, Anne Mitchell OAM, gave me a job at Sydney University Sports. So she gave me a go, right, for a fair go, for having a go. Yeah, giving someone with a disability or someone different a go, you just never know where you're going to get unless you give them a go. So I rose through the ranks in sports and I really enjoyed that. And then from that point, I moved to Melbourne to uh, work for a company named Darfish, which is video analysis. And I loved the technology and innovation. I was just so excited to try something different from just coaching, organising people in sports. And also at that time I was involved in deaf sports. I didn't realise that they had sports for people with a hearing loss who were deaf. And I think called the Deaf Olympics and the Australian Deaf Games. And suddenly I found like, my community in some ways. It's like they're all these people who are all wearing uh, hearing aids or cochlear implants and they're either speaking or signing. And, you know, we had Auslan or suddenly you know, had to learn sign language and it was hilarious. I played water polo, played an Australian team, and it was so funny because at Whistle Goes, we were doing these warm-up games, the Australian team against some local teams, and they're all hearing players and athletes. We're playing hearing teams, that's all. But when you have a whole team of deaf athletes, the Whistle Goes, we still kept playing. They stopped. <laughs> and we're like looking around the water, going, oh, have you stopped? And then suddenly after, I was really interested, we did a game and we were having a good game. And then this guy sort of played a bit of a trick on us because they realised that when they stop. We stop. So I guess what they did? The referee didn't blow the whistle. They stopped. We stopped. They passed the ball, put the ball back with that. They're like, hey, guys, that's not fair. <laughs> There's so many stories. I love hearing your stories, Dave. I just want to ask you something. You were talking before around getting a job and around applying for jobs and do you put on the resume that you're deaf or don't you and what are people going to think when you walk in? I know... And this is a really, really honest conversation. Before this interview, I was thinking, I wonder if we need to do anything different. Should I do a sound check with you? I didn't know how to do it in a way that is so respectful and non-judgmental. Like how do we acknowledge the disability without having that as the person? Do you know? Like I know that for me that's one of my greatest barriers and sometimes I go so silent because I don't know the way to do that because you are not your disability. 
It has shaped you and we have heard that. It has shaped you to the man that you are today. But you are so much more than your disability. I don't really know what my question is in there, but it's really around how do we show respect without showing judgment? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think the hardest part is ignoring the disability and looking at the person. Like blind date's a great example. You don't see the person. You don't see the face. You don't see the eyes and all of that. You hear the person. You understand. So you get the the resume. There's nothing about that person. You don't know they're blonde or brunette or different colour skin or you have a disability. What you're looking at is the skills on paper, what they actually offer. The hardest part, I think, is the, the shock or the instant default. Oh, got disability. Oh, that's it. We can't take this person on. Oh, it's going to be too trouble. Employers will start thinking that. And I think the hardest part, and my advice to employers, you've got to stop thinking like that. You've got to start thinking, I'm interviewing this person. This person with disability will help you sort out the other stuff. Let them guide you. Let them educate you. Let them inspire your team. Bring them part of your team, not because they have a disability, but because they have the skills that you need. They will sort out the problem with disability because they've got programs out there by the Australian government and you can also take the initiative. If you want this person for their skills, you can make the modification. You do it all the time. We modify our houses because the way we want our kitchen to be shaped Everyone does renovations for that. I think people need to start thinking a bit more about worry about the skill. The rest should take care of it. When you have that person on board, then take the responsibility to make sure that person to perform the best of their ability. And that means one word that a deaf person shouldn't be saying this, but is called listening. And what about then, Dave, when people meet you? Is it helpful when they say, what do you need from me? Or do you feel judged when they say that? Yeah. Yeah, we do, but I think we really appreciate it. I think we're getting less of that. We're thinking more of us have to do the work to support ourselves, especially with the uh, NDIS. People assume you have to bring every, all the equipment in, you have to bring in all of this. I think the conversation needs to turn around and what can we do to support you? What can we do to bring out your best you? If we can start having more of those conversations, I think Australia will be definitely a better place. And, Dave, I know I went off track there, very typical, But coming back to your story, you know, it is incredible listening to your story and being on this journey with you. You had just finished telling us about the water polo team. What did life look like after that for you? I think it was living in Melbourne. Water polo, I went to the Deaf Olympics in Melbourne. That was one of the best times of my life and playing with different countries around the world. We played Hungary, Italy, United States and Germany. And I tell you what, we didn't win any games. We fought hard like every Australian team does. And just to give you context, sign language is not universal. There are 150 different sign languages officially around the world. So even New Zealand and UK has different sign language to Australia. A lot of people don't realise that. So, But the other thing, we all found a way to communicate. One of the most memorable moments of those games was after the games have done or communicating, we actually found a way of communicating using our sign language and we made up a language that went, and I can tell you, was that never had a situation before where I was in a pub with a Hungarian, an Italian and a German and we were talking about all the common subjects that blokes talk about what's the best beer, women, naturally, what we do at home or even just families. And we're just uh, so common. The reality is none of us knew each other's spoken language at all. 
we just worked out a way to communicate really effectively. And we were chatting or signing for hours. It was probably one of the most memorable times of my life and it was just amazing. Going back to my life, working life, you know, it's not about that. It's boring. So I think the humanity actually finds a way through in communication. I think that was the death Olympics is all about. And not the small gains. This is the gains that brings about 4,000 people, athletes competing in many different sports at high level possible. The only difference is that they have to take their devices off. Otherwise, they get disqualified and kicked out of the games. So when you have drug testing, which we did, we also had hearing testing. So if you fail the hearing test, out. If you fail the drug test. Or if you pass the hearing test, you mean. Or fail or pass it. For us, fail is to hear the other way around. So thank you for clarifying that for those who do have hearing. If you can hear, sorry, guys, you can't compete. Anyway, so, yeah, that's the Deaf Olympics. In terms of what happened after that, I went back into work. The company worked up which didn't do too well, so actually was made redundant and I found myself unemployed again. Again, I had another round of more than 50 or 60 different interviews looking for jobs until I reached an organisation called Touch Football Australia. And they had enough faith in me to make me Victorian State Manager in Melbourne for Touch Football. For me, it was quite an honour to do it. It was actually a level of thank you. I mean, I was trying so hard to get something. I mean, I had all the quality on paper. I walked that job and I definitely showed it. I mean, when I was there, I started the first ever Victorian Touch Football League changed the finances of the organisation and improved the number of competitions, which was really good, and started the junior section. I mean, all those little things that people thought that I would never have done just because that's all word deaf, not the other stuff you can bring. I think then I got promoted to the national office and I became the, on the executive team of Touch Football Australia, which is the business operations manager, and that's a general manager of business operations. That was covering about an organised 400,000 members. So in the context of membership in sports, touch football is one of the highest participation sports in Australia. So that I was looking after all the membership, the money, the finances. I had to learn how to be accounting, financials. I had to learn how to work and lead a team of hearing people. I like to say that word to actually you know, do the job. I mean, for me, it's also a lesson for me learning that I don't have to be the smartest person in the room. I just need to be the leader in a room. And the leadership in that room is basically allowing people and hiring people to do the job. You don't need a leader. It's not someone that sits there and take over to pressing a button, to putting in the finances. There are people out there who are trained their whole life, so that's who you train and hire to do the work. And I've learned that very, very quickly in that role. And I'm very grateful for that opportunity, for them to have faith in me to actually allow me to do that. At the same time, I, along with quite a few of the deaf people, got together. We started looking at this program, designed a program called Here For You. Here For You is what we found was something that was missing for us when we were high school, and that was providing mentoring by adults who have a hearing loss preferably younger adults and older ones, but the ones who can provide mentoring for teenagers with hearing loss who, like myself, found themselves pretty much the only deaf person at their school, finding all those challenges that I mentioned about 
what happened in the HSD, going to classrooms, social isolations, not having relationships, all of those things. So we designed the program and we had uh, one of us, Olivia, she got a Churchill Scholarship and then she became the first founder, CEO of EFU and the rest of mentors and volunteers. So for 10 Sundays a year, we volunteered our time, probably a bit more. So I did about 20 weekends. I actually volunteered to mentor a group of five to 10 deaf teenagers from an age group, say year seven, eight, um, like 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. We focused on age groups and shared our experiences, but we also learned to listen, which is hard because we're deaf and we have to learn to listen. And we encouraged them to connect with each other. So they build up the networks and Fortunately, as time developed, yeah, they started building up those networks for themselves, which is something we're really proud of. But this is something that we found that there were all deaf staff, deaf volunteers, or deaf teenagers. And we're, that was one of the things, the values we hold that our agency, that we actually created something to give back. That's really one of our, it was one of the great stories. I'm so pleased that one of the things I did was when I was in sports, I got a little bit bored, and not a bored, but tired of doing the sports, the politics, etc. was really different. And there was an opportunity to be CEO here for you. So one of the funders sort of came over to me and said, well, why don't you come and lead and grow here for you from just a Sydney operation into something bigger? And I took that opportunity around 2011. You know, I became CEO here for you. So I grew that from just Sydney to Perth, Brisbane, Melbourne, in the country, way up to Rocky, Cairns, Adelaide, and over into Auckland, New Zealand. And we had the height of one stage at 200 teenagers to be mentored, around 40 to 50 deaf adult volunteer mentors with a small team of myself and four other people. It was a great fun. And we had to fundraise and everything ourselves. But I tell you, it was a good experience. Wow. And what a legacy. You know, when you think back to the footprint you leave, to think how you shape those young people's lives and change the way that we help people in Australia, it's incredible. Yeah, I think it was just the people with disabilities. I think this is a generation, I'm telling you, my generation passing on the legacy and the foundations to the next generation who have the fortune, not the misfortune, the fortune to have people who walk that path and to share that path so they can carve a better path. So we're actually telling them all the things that we experienced the hard way for them to navigate into the easy way. Shortcutting it for them, but they're our future, aren't they? These teenagers that you're mentoring are our future. Well, they are, and I think they have so much to give, and I think there was one of the things that has always been missing, and I think the other thing is, Especially as I've noticed, is the growing impact of social media. Social media is a good and a bad thing, and I can explain a bit more about that. Because experience with young people is quite profound in many ways. I'm not an expert on it, but looking at the experience from a deaf lens is great because you've got texting, which is one of the first things because you don't have to use the phone. You've got FaceTime. You're starting to share your stories, you start finding out more about people, but your friends you don't know because when you go and meet them, you don't have the time or you don't have to, you might not hear what their lives are. You don't know who that and the names, the parents and all of that. That was really good moulding 
for the key few, one of the great things is they can build their little network. They can have a connection. So I could be in a school in Sydney and there's a deaf teenager school in Dubbo or a school the same age in Newcastle. Those three would come meet together, a year for you program, and then they use social media or, you know, the messenger group. Hey, I'm having a crappy day today. I've been picked on. Somebody tried to take my cochlear implant on and throw it on in the bin. This is a real story. And then the other teenager would turn back and say, hey, really? That's awful. You know, all the language. Oh, by the way, that happened to me the other day too. What did you do about it? You got that mentoring. Because in reality, they have got no one else to talk to about the challenges. Probably a bit more of a, a less extreme example would be I go to school, trying to use the FM in my class, a teacher won't accept it. What do you do to get the teacher to do it? And usually the other kids say, well, sometimes just leave it on the desk. Two, I just put it in the teacher's bag. Uh, or, you know, the little tactics, or I use these words, if you don't put this on, use an eye in my human rights for me to listen to you. And I thought that was a really good one there. And it's something like every kid would do. And then we had a phone call from one of the principals of the school and said, excuse me, one of your kids just accused one of my teachers that they were denial of human rights. But actually, I said, well, obviously it is. And he said, well, thank you and keep up the program because that is exactly what our teachers need to hear. So good, so good. And it's bridging that gap of isolation. It is. And I think that's the isolation was really important. They found their own community, their own crowd. There was someone they can relate to. I mean, it doesn't have to be best mates or anything like that, but it's just someone, because again, I forgot to mention, there's 95% of deaf people in Australia who are born deaf, their families are hearing, have no experience in hearing loss, no understanding of what it is. It's just day one for them. As soon as their child is diagnosed and they start, and that's where programs like the Shepherd Centre, which I work for later on, how that works out. It's like suddenly someone flicked a switch and said, your child is deaf you got to start learning about everything now. That is exactly my experience. One moment we had a child we thought could hear and the next moment they said, your child is going deaf and we don't know how long, but she will go completely deaf. And I was like, where do I go for help? It shocked me that I couldn't just honestly Google and be like, what do I do? Where do I go? What support is there locally? It was really tough. And I thought, wow, we still have so far to go. We do, and we do. And I can bring that up now because it's really good segue into what the National Disability Insurance Scheme and how I got involved and all of that is. I accidentally, in 2011 as well, when um, I fell into Deafness Forum Australia, sorry, in 2010, before I went to hear for you, the uh, and I thought uh, when I signed up for it, I was just going to Deafness Forum for context is the national peak organisation for people with hearing loss. So we kind of represent 4 million Australians. I became a director of Deafness Forum and then two months later the chair resigned. Next minute I was actually the chairperson of Deafness Forum. So I found myself suddenly in the national hot seat of uh, being the leader of the deafness sector, which I've never even thought at the time that I would fall. And I can I can remember the time when I was just going to be a director. That was hard. I was nervous enough. I thought, oh, that was going to be tough. And then suddenly being elected and selected by the board, other directors that you be the chair, that was even more scary. It was like, whoa, how far have I come now? And then there was like that following week I had to go down to Parliament in Canberra and meet with the Minister for Health and the Minister for Disabilities at the time just to uh, 
pitched our concerns here in Loughran are not going to be involved in NDIS or are they and who will be in there and also the issues around the challenges of hearing. Uh, one of the things in hearing loss space is here in Australia, well, I need to provide hearing aids complimentary to people up to 21 years old. And then we had to lobby to try and expand it because when you don't have a royal paid job or you're unemployed or you are trying to pay the family bills, when you had to think about the choices you had to make between an $8,000 hearing aid versus $8,000 on the family budget or $8,000 into helping you get that home or paying the rent. You know, all of the things you can think about $8,000, what can $8,000 do for you? Well, for us, we had to make a choice of $8,000 for our hearing, to keep in our jobs, to get motion, to engage our community, or we put that into our families or something else. If you don't have $8,000, you're staying with your old device. And at one stage, I had a hearing aid that was about eight years old. And I use the analogy of, I asked everyone, how old is your mobile phone before you go and replace it? Now, everyone about three years. Some people maybe one, well, it's good on you. But a lot of people are three years. That's the average. At the time when I was chair of Deputy's Wife, most people who are over the age of 21, I was 26 when they changed it, were not replacing it. They were using it for a decade or a bit longer in their working lives. And we're talking about devices that it's not just the hearing aid, it's the technology. And the one thing I've learned very quickly, especially uh, when I was in the workforce, is how fast the technology advances. And if you've got the technology that's 10 years old, you'll be left behind. And that impacts on a lot of aspects of your life, especially when you rely on it to get your bread and butter. After we achieved that with the government, the governments have announced this thing called the National Disability Insurance Scheme. So what NDIS is about is instead of the government funding specific institutions or organisations direct, before the NDIS, here for you, we get a lump sum. We'll apply for it. We'll do all the grant writing. We'll get the best grant writers in the world if we can afford it. Or usually, in most cases, we get a volunteer or we do it ourselves. We try and apply for an amount of money for what we assume would be a number of people to be assessing our programs and to pay the staff that we run the programs, the expenses, keep the lights on, etc. The NDIS has changed all of that. So instead of the money coming straight from the government, straight to something like here for you or any other provider, it goes to the hands of people with disabilities themselves. It goes back to the point about the government gives the money to someone like myself, and I have to close, I'm on the NDIS because I have a severe found hearing loss within the rules. If you have a 90% hearing loss in the better ear and you're over a certain age, you will get NDIS. But quick context, I'll get the money instead of the Deaf Society or a support organisation, and I will use a small allotment. It's not funding. It's allotment of funds that I could use the funds to pay for a caption or for a hearing device or for an Auslan interpreter if I want to get an Auslan interpreter for an event or something outside work. This is where it gets complicated in the disability sector. But there's another funding arrangement for workplace called Employment Assistance Fund. So again, we're trying to balance all of these funding. So instead of organisations being the people managing and organising the funding, the individuals and the families with disabilities, the 600,000 Australians with the NDIS are now mini or micro fund managers. They're choosing 
where they do what's best for them because that's the whole philosophy of the NDIS. It's about picking the service in the marketplace to allow the market to respond to you as a person and that's how it works rather than the government giving something to say here for you or some organisations say, we think oh, 10 people use our services and we'll do this. In reality, we've got 25 people using our services because we applied because we thought that we're going to get that money because we don't have enough lobbying power like some of the bigger ones. Again, some of the bigger organisations get more money than they need for that particular cohort of people. NDIS means the number of feet that walks into your shop or your business is how much you actually have to earn and that's how your business got to run. So that's how the NDIS works. As a chair of Defence Point, that was my responsibility was to make sure Australians with hearing loss are included in the NDIS and especially what level of disability. And that was the biggest controversial issue right at the beginning of the NDIS. I remember a time I had a conversation when Minister Jenny Macklin at the time and Julia Gillard was in the room and we're talking to all the disability peak chairs, leaders. For every beautiful story, there's also a backstory, a tough story. A tough story was... Nobody was able to ask or felt brave enough to ask, where do we draw the line? We left the line to be drawn to the bureaucrats and the government to make. People not like us. Even though I was ready to have a scrap about the line, and we did. We all had a scrap in our own ways. We didn't have any open. And if we did, we run the risk of Australia looking at us in a very negative light that we've been one selfish greedy, do not understand, and playing around with their money. I think Australia was, at the time, was not mature enough to allow it to have that conversation and come back with the line. I think we're starting to get there now, and I think what the government's doing, and also the previous governments with the NDIS is out of control, is because we couldn't have that conversation about where the line is. Tough conversation, though. Your child can't hear 13%. You can have NDIS but your child can't hear 12%, you can't have it. Like we're talking about where is that line? Your child can hear a car, your child can hear the cello, one gets NDIS. Like where do you draw that line? How do you make that decision and who? Who makes that decision? And what's the backlash on that decision being made? I get this all the time. You're tall, you're handsome, you wear hearing aids, what's wrong with you? Why are you getting NDIS and that person in the wheelchair doesn't get much? How does that work? I'm like... You don't see my disability. And the other fear we had is that we felt that we're going to go back to the bad old days where they will assess you on your ability in terms of how you do qualification, how you interact. And if you are performing too well, you're presumed not to have a disability. It shouldn't be holding you back. I've seen that so many times, even with my daughter with her kidney disease. I've tried to advocate to say she needs support and they're like, but she's performing. And I'm like, well below what she could be. Like she's missed more school than she's attended. Like just because she's performing doesn't mean she shouldn't get access. I don't have the answers. I hope you do, Dave. <laughs> I do, hopefully one day. So just the <laughs> I do have the answers. So let me in. I'll be able to sort that out. So I think the, the question of a line is so important. I think the other one is the chair of Defence Forum, and I've mentioned it before, is that we look up for me in Australians. There are not 4 million Australians with hearing loss on the NDIS. In actual fact, there's probably about 20,000 people with hearing loss on the NDIS, probably a bit more than that with the children, maybe probably about 40, depending. But in terms of adults, it's about 20,000. 
So I'm actually in a very, very rare minority. But in realising that, one of the things we're missing and one of the things the biggest challenge I had was the Deafness Forum. We were funded by the government and then it, the funding got cut because they had to reform the NDIS and then they didn't know what to do with it. Peaks, they thought we didn't need it. So myself and my board and I came up with the concept of a lot of people with a hearing loss don't see themselves having a disability. They see themselves having a health issue. And the question I was asking at the time, and it was about 2013, 14, why aren't we going down to health? If there's two to three million Australians who see themselves having hearing loss, not disability, if this is mild, moderate hearing loss, it's a health issue. They lost the hearing over time through a disease, through noise, etc. I had to take a mission to make hearing health a national priority. In Australia, hearing loss is the top five health conditions that does not at the time have any roadmap, any health priority, any recognition by the federal government except through here in Australia, which is just an arm of audiology. And that was done at the will and the determination of veterans from the Second World War who've lost their hearing and they needed the federal government because they had veterans from the Second World War at the time set it up because their fellow comrades in the military were lost their hearing and they needed someone to be supported. That's how I got my hearing aids through here in Australia. The government never had anything about hearing loss. So hearing aids, for example, is seen as a medical device, even though we need it for work. That's a good example. We found the hearing help. We can't claim it on tax. You can't get anything. So if you're not on the NDIS, you have to find the money. You get hearing devices. You have to find a way to get your group of people, employers, communities to understand who you are hearing. So that's why we went to hearing loss and hearing health for national priority and we started the campaign and we lobbied the government and it was actually the Morrison government who actually made agree to have the roadmap for hearing health for Australia and health department finally recognised hearing loss as a major health issue and that's when deafness for our government. For them, the guy that got told you're not going to finish your 10 or you'll finish your 10 and that's it to what we're talking about now. It's incredible. I keep using that word. I need to come up with a different word, but it blows my mind. What you have personally achieved, professionally achieved, the courage, the determination, the grit, the legacy. The legacy is what really sits there as I listen to your story. Yeah, well, thanks for that. But uh, there's still a lot more to go. It's not about that. It's not not just about me. It's about so many other people as well because the other thing, hearing loss can impact anyone. And one of the things that really motivated me is with the Deafness Forum and the you listening to my fellow mentors, everyone was just like sick and tired of watching fellow Australians with great hearing destroy them. You got the gift. You can hear well. You're loving your music. We see so many people enjoy the music, enjoy having a conversation, sitting there listening to podcasts, uh, all of that, which I only just discovered to you at Cochlear Implants, and that was one of the best things that ever happened with like podcasts. How does that work? So, How did I get here in front of this camera? What is that? <laughs> definitely. So all of that happened. Still chair of Deafness Forum. I'm now the longest serving chairman of Deafness Forum. And I'm still, I go down to Canberra once or twice and then I do scare the hell out of politicians, but uh, they appreciate it. I've got friends groups set up in Parliament. It's amazing that you scratch the surface. And I ask this of everyone who's advocating and lobbying, especially for a disability or health issue scratch the surface you will find supporters they're always there because somebody knows somebody who has that condition and
And when they're in a position in government, they want majority of parliamentarians want to make a difference. You just got to take it to them. And in a very not aggressive but informative way because you'll find your supporters. You make better friends in politics if you're informative and nice. They go around and telling them they're doing the wrong thing because people get defensive. That's how we found the trick definitely for them to get in this priority. We found our allies and friends across all sides of politics. Well, hopefully we're going to be seeing you soon in that space, I hope. It'd be honour to be able to be elected to Parliament. I mean, definitely never say never. But I can tell them one thing, if I do elect me, I'll be their best advocate. I'm not just here for hearing loss. I know a lot more. And the best thing about me is I have a life of advocating and going to get things done. Yeah. And Dave, we are going to have to finish up soon, but I wanted to ask you about the cochlear implants. So, because we've mentioned that a few times throughout this episode. I've always known the cochlear was going to be on the agenda way back when I first found it. I think I remember way back when I was young, my parents said, oh, I've got a cochlear implant. I was only going to get it if my hearing dropped. Even if 95 decibels here in loss, if you drop a couple more decibels, you will notice. But I also was trying to push myself until the technology catches up or gets to a great level so my hearing in my ear so how it worked is when i went for hearing test and i was feeling a bit so one of the hearing start dropping my audiologist said at the time i think you need to start looking at option to cochlear implant and i said oh okay well we can go for a few tests so one of the tests they do is each recognition test so they will do a couple of words and they'll test you sit in front of a microphone and all these words come out it's a very basic sentence like the cat has sat on the mat or the postman went to town. At the end of that test for my hearing aids, I, the time before surgery, and the reason why I had to go was I only heard 5%. I wasn't lip reading. I was actually relying on 90% of my communication for lip reading in the hearing aids within five. And I was doing all of that with deafness for him. All of that here for you, all of that at the same time, as well as my life and my family. Was this when COVID, like the masks as well? Because that would have had a huge impact. Yep. The masks was also a big factor. I had no idea what people were saying. I was trying to use phones and captions and interpreters, which is awful. Probably one of the toughest times. It was also a means I had to really, really think long and hard the challenges. I knew through my connections and deafness forum, the best surgeon I could have. I'm not going to name because I'm not going to name surgeon because white people get jealous. But all I can say that she impressed me because she had a practice where she worked closely with an audiologist in her hospital surgery. And you know, for specialists and audiologists working together. So that's how I decided. And then I made the decision I'm going to have a cochlear implant in my worst ear. My best ear is my right and my worst ear is my left. And I waited and I said, I want the latest. And that was the Nucleus 8 of Cochlear. And we're just coming out last year in 2022, my year. So it was also the fact that I have a daughter and I was missing words and I wanted to be able to make sure I can at least give myself the opportunity in here and speak. And look, the other thing, and I've got a second language is Auslan. If the implant fails, I was confident enough that I can survive and I will. It will always find a way. The hardest part was not the surgery. The surgery was scary, as all surgeries are. It was funny because I went to, they knocked me out with my hearing aid in and the next week I had this bandage. Old days, even up to four or five years ago, cochlear implant surgeries, you have a surgery and you wait for two weeks before you can get a switch on. My surgeon, being a pioneer in advance, 
she got me to switch my first sound, cochlear implant, barely 12 hours overnight. I got in at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the surgery, all of that cochlear, and the next morning I wheeled down to the audiology booth and put my new cochlear implant on, the device on, on top of the cochlear, and switch on. And just to get full circle, in the room when they switched on was Maria, my wife, Lenka, my daughter, and my mother. Now, the mother, the second time in her life, said the words, hello, David. And that's what I heard. But Maria was said, no, she wasn't. I was looking at her and then she pointed to my mum. I said, you need to talk to her. Let her do it. That was beautiful. So all I heard was, hello, David. But it, was, it wasn't clear as day as most people think it is. It's like a shrilly, squeaky, beepy duck sound. But I knew exactly what she was saying. That's so beautiful to imagine that moment. Was it hard to hear with that new sound? Yeah, it took me six months. Yeah. So the first, the hardest part was you had to train your brain again. So cochlear implants is not normal hearing. It's bionic hearing. It's actually electronic hearing. So instead of hearing through the normal passage with hearing aids, it amplifies sound or your normal hearing. This is actually a coil that's going into the nerve center of the cochlea of your brain, and it's doing a little stimulation of the nerves. It's no sound, just stimulation. So I've got to learn to, my brain, I've got to train my brain to hear words. So I had to start all over again. So you're thinking, give you an idea, I had to learn like, ooh, ah, shh, to all those words, all those little sounds again. When I first heard, I didn't even know what they sound like. And I had to practice every day. Unfortunately, today, technology is over, mobile phones, you can get the download the app. And this is one of the things that people don't realize. I had to use my NDIS to pay for a good speech and language therapist who specialized in hearing. And unfortunately, I worked in Shepherd Center. I used one of their staff there, which was really grateful. And that's off the side, a separate business that we paid her to do. So she supported and guided me through the listening, the practice of listening, the practice of how to speak again. Because, again, what you speak is how you hear what you speak. That's why we have funny accents. What is it like going from being the chair, a high-powered CEO, having fought your way all the way to the top and then learning to hear again? That's an interesting question, actually. I think it's just taking a moment that you have to get yourself well. You have to sort yourself out. I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, I was still chair of... Indefinite forum, and I wasn't CEO here for you, here for you. Then I integrated and merged into the Shepherd Center again. It's another whole story. Unfortunately, that's a great issue, uh, but it's so good now. But I think the having the time off from my employers was good. I took a lot of sick leave and annual leave. I took about two months away from work to really work on my hearing. I took time out to be able to be at home. But learning had Maria, for example, came and she helped me a lot, which she used to read articles and ask me what did I hear. Little things like that. We just practice. And I think it comes back down for me, my competitiveness and my experience in sports as an athlete, as a coach, I mean coach, as a minister, I knew that if you have to put the work in, you also not only yourself and put work in, I mentioned before I had speech and language coach who specialised in hearing loss. You can't just go to normal speech pathologist. You need to get someone who understands it. That 
is your support team. And that is, gets me back to where I was. And I was so pleased that by the second month, I was able to understand things a lot better. And it still grows and develops. So I think cochlear implant for me was, you know, just to give you an idea of success in six months later. So I had the surgery the end of November. By July, we had the speech perception test again. So remember before it was about 5%. I had it again. And look, it's just for me, my personal thing. I just want to let people know that everyone's different. In my case, I was fortunate enough that this worked for me and I reached about 95% speech perception. Whoa, did not expect you to say that. Wow, what's the biggest difference for you? Hearing a lot more things. I'm actually finding going to like where the Liberal Party member where we have these branch meetings, one of the things that before or even any sort of meetings, you sit in the audience, I have to get the FM set and I have to go set it up. Today, I was able to sit in the second or third row and hear what the person was speaking. And I can lip read, but I can use the lip reading power. That's not going to go away. And hear that person a lot clearer than having to do all these additional tools and devices just to interact. So that's a bit of a, a milestone, you put it that way. So before surgery, I had to do a lot of stress and work and all of that. I still get a little bit of the anxiety still there. The lifetime of that, you can't change overnight. You will eventually, but I'll still use the devices and I always remind myself, keep using it because you never know you're missing. But that was a big difference. I'm starting to pick up those things and I didn't realise. I think probably a more personal one was I didn't know that when my daughter was drinking out of a bottle that there was a noise. I didn't know it was a sucking sound. I didn't know. I had no idea. Before, like in in November, I was bottle feeding her. I just saw this baby sucking. I thought it might be a quiet thing. No, it was really noisy. Just hearing her breathe was probably one of the most interesting. I mean, I had no idea. Yeah. They have little baby snores. It was just those little things. I was like, wow. I remember when my daughter first got her hearing aids, we walked outside. My husband was with her and she was just grabbed his arm. She's like, what is that? And he's like, what? She's like, that noise. And he's like, what noise? And it was the cars. She hadn't heard cars. She was like, cars make a sound? We were just like, whoa, you didn't know cars made a sound? <laughs> like they're pretty mind-blowing moments, aren't they, when you discover a sound but you had no idea that it made a sound? Definitely. So many little sounds and nuances I had no idea. And even with the cochlear, what you thought you heard with hearing aids, something different than cochlear implants so there's so many things but i think one thing i really need to remind people of is i'm still deaf so if i take this implant off i can't hear anything there is nothing the other thing is always in the back of my mind is technology go back to using a mobile phone how many times have people had their mobile phones batteries go flat or they crash or they don't work anymore that is always going to be the risk that's always going to be in play for me the rest of my life and this is why I think when people go, oh, you know, cochlear implants will change the world and, you know, you won't need sign language. I just say this, um, that sign language is probably the best anxiety prevention for any deaf person they can have. If you've got something you need, your backup plan. For anybody to totally turn their life over technology is asking for trouble should that technology fail. And I think that's something that people need to be aware of. 
or you got that backup plan. That's the beauty of Auslan. It's a language that could be your backup plan. Dave, we've definitely gone over time. I think you and I are both sitting here in conversation, forgetting that it's Friday afternoon and time to go home to our families. What is next for you? What's on the cards? Oh, you can never say never, but I definitely have been trying and I will be looking at probably a stint to run for parliament. There are 20% of Australians have a disability. We have the NDIS. It is a massive spending from our money, taxpayers' money, into investing in this game. What's really stark is that we don't have anybody really who have a lived experience of a national disability insurance scheme as either a self, a participant, an in provider, and understands the politics of the disability sector, understands different aspects of it, but more importantly, understand how it impacts on a local community. So disability doesn't discriminate. The other thing is I see things differently than a lot of people see. Having a, a hearing loss actually educates me to understand people. I have more chance of empathy, and I feel that I can offer that in a better way. People come up to me and say, well, you know, you should do more. You know how to advocate. You know how to make things happen. You can actually reach and relate to people. And I think that never say never. I remember my grandfather always said to me, don't sit on the fence in life. Just get off it and get in because you never know where you end up. But if you stay on that fence, you probably stay on it for the rest of your life and you will never know what could have been. Wish I got to meet your grandfather. He sounds like a very wise man. Sadly, he's no longer with us for a very long time. But, you know, someone who grew up through the Great Depression, through the Second World War, through life after the war, the Australian boom, just having sort of that wisdom and being the oldest and then having to work and not having a chance to go to university, watching his younger brother go and become a parliamentarian and attorney general under uh, the Menzies Holt government. It's just like an era of what I felt that was Australians really rolling up their sleeves after. Like we talk about having COVID. I think we're at the same stage where we are after the Second World War. And I think it's time for opportunities for us who like to fight for who we are, but also have an understanding of where we can go. And I, I just personally reflect on the fact that we live in a great country. We have some great ideas. The NDIS is one thing, but there's so many other things I'm so passionate about next generation. I just love innovation technology and I'm living the technology. Like cochlear is an Australian technology. What else are there out there? I can feel it in the next generation of Australians and I also feel it in many families as well. I think a lot of people were living in days where we need to create the opportunities and I think we can do that. And we just got to look at my grandfather's generation that post-war they have created the foundations, we have another opportunity. I think we just need people like myself and many others who I know out there really encouraging Australians, young people, but also us ourselves taking that step because we can all contribute. Absolutely can. And Dave, I love to finish every podcast with asking who or what in your world truly makes you belly laugh. I think you're just watching my daughter try things. She speaks three languages, English, German and Polish. I can tell you, I don't know anything about Polish. And anytime my daughter doesn't want to listen to me, doesn't want to talk to me, doesn't want to, when I say something, instead of replying back, Daddy, or I want to do this, anything in English, she speaks back in Polish. 
and then she walked off. I love that. David, it has been an honour, an absolute privilege to have you on here this afternoon. I, It's the most speechless I've been in a podcast. I felt like I don't want to say anything. I just want to hear your experience and, you know, your way of sharing it with the world to help us understand some of what you've been through. You only touched on some moments, but it's a gateway. It's a gateway for us to start the conversations with people around us. So thank you so much for coming on and sharing with my community and with me today. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure to share. Whoa, what an episode. That was so inspirational. I love that no matter who says no, how they say no, how they push back, David's like, watch me. I can do this. He gets so focused on what he wants to achieve. And it's not about him, right? Like what he has done for this country and for the deaf community is incredible. It would have been so much easier not to. And I just, the whole way through that interview, I just felt so much love, kindness, just inspiration. And I just keep picturing the legacy that he's going to be leaving for the generations behind him. So, David, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. For any of you that are out there that are senior leaders, do not forget to jump on the show notes or DM me and I will send you the info. We have the three-day high-performance leadership summit in March, but there's only 25 spots. So, if you blink, if you take a breath, if you don't look at this, you will miss out. This is going to sell out so quickly. We're bringing six extraordinary individuals into the room to deep dive into high-performance leadership. But it's not just those six, right? It's the other 25 people that are in the room as well. So if that's you and you're interested, jump on the show notes, reach out to me. I'm happy to jump on a call. I'm so, so excited about this. Have a great first week to January 2024, and I will see you all next Monday with Bells On. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.